Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. Today I'm talking with a longtime friend of BE Works, Professor Dilip Soman. Dilip is a professor of marketing at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He's also the director of the Behavioral Economics and Action Research Center, known as BEAR, and is the director of the Behaviorally Informed Organizations Partnership. His own research is in the area of behavioral economics and its application to well-being, marketing, and policy. Philip and I had an interesting conversation about how behavioral science can inform COVID-19 responses. And in particular, we talked about the impact that it has on the digital transformation for educators and organizations. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with uh, talking about uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. That's what really inspired this whole conversation series in the first place was I wanted to have the opportunity to reach out to the people in my network who I very much trust and, and love talking with and learn from and feel inspired by and feel uh, motivated by. And I was like, who are those people? And, and you were one of them. And it's important in this time of probably the, the most severe and confusing crisis that, that I've ever experienced um, to be able to have these conversations. And it made sense to be able to, to share it with others. And what I really wanted to um, have a chance to do is just, it's, this is a very casual format type mm-hmm. of, of these, uh, these, these video, um, you know, podcast. Um, but it's just a chance to start to to talk to you about what of the you know what have you been thinking about what research have you seen or been engaged in around um, making contribution of making sense of COVID nineteen. Uh, oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> I I can, I can jump right into that. I mean I I think a lot of people ask me this question of does your research help us better tackle COVID nineteen uh, or what part of the research helps you do it and my answer is everything and nothing at the same time. Uh, and, and so let me try and sort of unpack that a little bit in, in the sense that I do believe that a lot of what I study, things like behavior change, uh, nudging, mental accounting, are, are all potentially useful tools to help us steer behaviors in the appropriate direction, be they in the domain of wearing masks or uh, you know, social distancing or complying with other elements of, of the health guidelines or even making sense of data, I think. Uh, but as you know, one of my biggest kind of points that I've tried to make over the last couple of years is the importance of context and that we need to be careful of not simply treating our research in the journals as an off-the-shelf solution. So just because I showed in a 2010 paper that A causes B doesn't mean that A is always going to cause B. And so I, I guess sort of the the broad point I want to make here is that I think a lot of the conceptual ideas that I've done in my research uh, on, on behavior change in particular will apply to helping us understand 
A, how do we get people to comply with health regulations? B, how do we help them understand and make sense of the world? And C, how do we think about organizations and how they should adapt uh, to functioning in a COVID-type era going forward? Uh, but again, I mean, at, at, at best, we can offer sort of a starting point for the research. Uh, you know, the past is great. It's a, it's a decent predictor of the future. But unless we test those ideas in, uh, in this particular domain, right? So let me give you one quick example of the kinds of things that I'm working on, right? Uh, which is the idea of conflicting information. Okay, so, um, you know, this is particularly true in the United States. We, we saw a little bit of this in Canada in the early stages of the pandemic where, Minister A would say, go away and enjoy your, your March break. And Minister B said, you know, wear a mask, stay inside, social distance, right? So we've often heard conflicting pieces of evidence. And, you know, these have often been also in the domain of science. Uh, so we've had a paper that shows that uh, hydrochloroquine uh, helps COVID uh, resistance. And another paper that shows it hurts COVID resistance. So how, how do I make sense of these pieces of data? And I think... Uh, you know, you could actually start hypothesizing many things. You know, there's an averaging model where the average consumer says, well, look, this one showed a positive effect, that one showed a negative effect. So maybe overall there's no effect at all, right? Uh, or there could be a trust issue, right? You know, paper A was written by Kelly, who I trust. Uh, paper B was written by someone I don't know. And so I'm going to go with the trust, right? Or you could have an anchoring and adjustment kind of an issue where I rely first on the evidence that I see first, and then I keep updating, uh, updating that. So we've been actually trying to tease apart which of these three things. And uh, I think our early results suggest that it's actually none of these. Uh, it's a, it shows it a distrust kind of a model, which is, you know, these guys can't even get their act together. So why should I believe any of them? And I think that's a slightly frightening thing to, to find out. I mean, again, I don't say this as a definitive conclusion, uh, but I think, you know, that's, that's one stream of research. We've also been working with a couple of companies on uh, sort of pivoting processes and products online. So things that were, you know, currently offline processes, wealth management or, you know, the sales process. How do we now change that to an online process. And, and, and I think that's an important behavioral story right there because there's a strong managerial tendency to, to you know, essentially take what you've been doing in the offline world and recreate it online. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. Uh, and I can chat a bit more about that if you like. Yeah, let's, t let's talk about that um, conversion to online. I mean, we've been looking at the challenges of you know, digital transformation has been uh, talked about for it's well over a decade. I mean, I mean, started with the e-commerce journey, but digital transformation picked up more more steam. You know, that first generation was about creating that dot-com capability. Mm -hmm. Digital transformation includes everything from having that hybrid and, and cross-channel approach. I had a very interesting conversation uh, with a retailer about. Um, her challenge in digital transformation. And I'd, I'd love to, to hear your point of view on that as, as well as um, uh, see how that fits within the rest of the, the conversion uh, topic that, that you've been working on. She said that dealing with um, Amazon, for instance, has been her, her stress over the last you know, five years. Mm -hmm figuring out where their brand fits in with Amazon as, uh, as both a distribution partner, but also as a, as a competitor and a new competitive set. And uh, they've been navigating their way through that. 
But what COVID-19 has done has very much shifted the, um, the, the retail distribution channel because now consumers are also thinking, which channel do I feel safest in? And this is now changing that option set yet again. So I'd love to hear uh, the kinds of things that you're, you're thinking about around digital transformation. Sure. So, so let, let's start with the basic. And so, so if I kind of go back and, and look at the question of the competition with Amazon, I mean, clearly, you know, the, the, the marketing 101 response is your value proposition needs to be so compelling that you know, this, this whole notion of channel choice and then which product should I choose should essentially be a, a, an easy, a trivial decision for the consumer to make. So, so the bigger question is how do I actually make that value proposition compelling, right? Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, I'm going to start with sort of a tennis metaphor. I, I love the game. I play it a heck of a lot. Uh, and, and, and so here's my, here's my simple quiz question for everyone who's listening in, which is, uh, what's common to Jimmy Connors, uh, John McEnroe, Peter Sampras, Martina Hingis, I could go on and on. Uh, and I'll give the answer. Not, not only were they all great uh, tennis players, uh, Grand Slam winners, but none of them won the French Open. Right? And I remember actually watching a documentary on John McEnroe about 10, 15 years ago, when he was actually asked about this. And he said, you know, the single biggest mistake I used to make when I played in, uh, at the Roland Garros was I brought my hardcore game to clay. And it's a different surface. And as the conditions changed, I knew I should have changed. I knew I should have changed my game. But a part of me just couldn't do it. I mean, I would just serve and, and run in. That's just the way I was. I was hardwired. And I think we're often as business people, as educators doing that when we digitally transform, right? So let me, let me be specific, right? I, I think the mistake we're making is we're essentially trying to recreate our physical world online. And I think that's a big mistake, right? So, so let me give you an example of education. That's, that's the domain I know the most. I've written a bit about this. I've done some research. Uh, so let me start off with my claim that I think the classroom, the in-class education experience is perhaps, it's one of the most constrained teaching environments. And I, I mean that in a number of different, it's, it's imperfect um, for, for a few reasons. One is I know, we know from psychology that all of us have different chronotypes, right? So I'm at my peak at eight o'clock in the morning. You might be at your peak at six in the evening. So what's the point of bringing 60 people together, all with different chronotypes at the same point in time uh, when most of us are not going to be at our peak, right? The internet lets us handle asynchronousity. Uh, and, and so we, we need to sort of think about using the asynchronous aspect of the internet. So that's one, right? Uh, but also the classroom favors certain kinds of students. And in business school, it, it favors outspoken students. Uh, it favors students with long attention spans compared to ones with short. And growing up, sort of, I was attention deficit. So God, I know I've struggled through those two-hour classes. Um, so now that we have the capability of delivering things in bite sizes, of being able to customize different pathways for different students. Why don't we do that, right? So I'm, I'm sort of obviously, you know, when the pandemic first hit and all of us had to move online, I understand that we had to recreate our uh, sort of, you know, our model of teaching from the physical world because we had, you know, times allocated for that. But now I sort of hope we will transition to a slightly more different model of teaching, right? I think we have to break our mentality that a course is 
12 class meetings of two hours each and move that more towards what are my educational objectives and how do I best deliver them synchronously versus asynchronously and what's the right mix. And so, you know, many years back when I started teaching online, I had actually done a bit of research showing that uh, a blended model is really the way to go. I mean, you want enough synchronous opportunities for the energy of the debate and all of that stuff, but you also want to create enough of a buffered zone for, for delivering content asynchronously so that students can think about their responses and they don't have to be pressured into saying, I agree with him, which is what we see a lot of in our MBA classrooms. Um, and, and so I think understanding the capabilities of the playing field and how they're different should allow us to enhance the entire teaching mental model. And I think this is the same for all kinds of things, like, you know, wealth management or financial advice. I mean, right, like as a financial advisor, you're normally constrained to giving information sequentially about different products and services, right? Now online, you could do things simultaneously. You could actually co-create that discussion, interrupt and you could pause and say, you know, here are three ways I could go click on a button, tell me which one you want to hear first and things like that, um, which I think we need to build in. So I, I guess long story short is we need to learn to play the clay court game. Uh, and that essentially means understanding the complexity or the difference in the environment and the context uh, and then adapting some of these things. And that's a classic behavioral phenomena is, is as, as you know, we, you know, we are susceptible to biases and one of the biggest biases that we are susceptible to is the status quo. And so, if this has worked for me well in the classroom, why would it not work for me online? Uh, well, it's the clay court, right? Yeah. So, so words of wisdom from John McEnroe there. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. I, I um, you're you're always known for your wonderful metaphors that are that are funny and insightful yeah. at the same time. So that that's a wonderful one, um, and I like how you've applied that to uh, the challenge in in education. Um, it's a sector that I have a long background in as well. My uh, former partner is the head of uh, um, basically a, a chain of, of schools mm -hmm. at our Academy Online, which is based on online learning, but it's a hybrid model. And mm -hmm. I pioneered the hybrid model about 10 years ago, and it's it's very interesting, um, some of the philosophies that are embedded in, into his business. Um, they target um, careers uh, that require licensure. So um, things like HVAC, um, different kinds of uh, technical uh, trades backgrounds and things that require a, a license in order to be able to practice, you have to go through uh, a coursework and, and demonstrate that through exams. But instead of offering that just fully online, the hybrid model also has a teaching facility but it's different. It stays actually online, but you go to the campus and you register on the computers um, on campus. And so obviously it was before uh, COVID-19 that they had already built out this capability. And one of the reasons that they did this was um, to, first of all, people can, can show up when, whenever, they, whenever they want, um, but it provides accountability Mm -hmm. Having that accountability in a purely online channel where you don't have a time commitment, which is what many of the online courses up to COVID-19 
permitted was you log in anytime uh, you want. But having that accountability uh, to, to show up is one of the things that helps ensure student success. And another one is um, social pressure um, and Absolutely. creation of a community that social pressure provides um, some of that benefit. Even now his students are, um, they're adult learners. They're coming at education from a background that is not what we typically think about when we're thinking about a college uh, kid, for instance. Mm -hmm. There's a very different journey or set of journeys that, that they have um, arrived um, from high school. These are adult learners that have had a, a very broad set of background and life circumstances that are, are bringing them here for a new learning opportunity and a new career opportunity that might actually be this like massive vector change in in their lives. Typically, um, they'd never been to college, never would see themselves on, on a campus, don't fit into that world. A lot of them never even graduated from high school, just wasn't part of of their background or their family or anything that they saw. And so then this community is a community where people can fit in and to bring in some of that social norm and benchmarking. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on accountability in the online learning world, hybrid learning world, which um, you two um, believe in, and the role of community in facilitating student success. So, I mean, absolutely, those two things are critical, and I think that's why the hybrid approach works well. Whether or not you do it in person or use other interventions, I think that's an empirical question. So, for example, today, uh, the classes I'm teaching, we cannot do them in person, and so I would have loved to have people come in and be on premises and, and, and sort of, you know, exchange ideas just to get a sense of what other people are doing. Uh, but you can engineer those things online, right? So for example, when we look at our discussion boards, uh, it's important to highlight who has accomplished what and set goals for other people. And it's important to then create those local groups or subgroups. And so in some of my classes, I create local, you know, special interest groups. I say, well, look, you know what? I've looked at the discussion boards, Six of you have focused a lot on, on banking and the other six on packaged goods. And I'm going to create these little subgroups within my course. And I'm going to each, give each one of them a specific question, a specific thing to think about. And I'd like you to post responses by such and such a day so we can then share them across the class. And I think even things like that uh, go a long way in creating that sense of community. Uh, and then I get, of course, you know, participants coming in and say, well, you, know, put, you put me in the banking uh, subgroup, but I'm also interested in that one. And, and it, it then creates those kinds of sort of, you know, activity sets that you want to create. So I, I think you're absolutely right in that, you know, there is obviously content delivery, which is an important part of any education experience, right? But there's, there's a whole community, the enrichment piece, the application piece, and, and you really have to work hard at fostering that. And, and again, like I say, it could be through physical proximity, but it doesn't have to be. I think that's the part that a lot of people miss. Uh, in, in taking their classes online is uh, a, a lot of instructors uh, in high schools and at universities believe that their, their primary goal is to educate, i.e. to provide content uh, and impart a specific skill. But it's really that sense of can my students use that skill? Do they have a have a nuanced understanding. Um, and so little things, right? I mean, I, I just, I, I crawl through my discussion boards and I'll pick up two opposite points of view. Uh, 
Uh, and I'll say, well, look, you know, John just gave this example of A causing B, uh, and, and Jill just gave this example where apparently the opposite is true, A did not cause B. Uh, what do you think is going on, right? And so we push the students to come up with nuanced thinking. And again, th these are things that are really hard to do in a brick and mortar world because just keeping track of what everyone said is difficult. Uh, whereas now I can, I can do that. I can, I, I can let students express themselves in whatever language they want. And I have students now, for example, you know, writing text messages. There are some that do audio recordings. That there are some that sketch ideas out. And, and, and I think that's the kind of stuff that you don't get to see uh, in, in the brick and mortar classroom. So, so I do think as long as you harness the ability of the digital world, uh, then you can actually create a value proposition that is that, that even pushes people out of the comfort zone uh, and, and challenges status quo. So I think, it, I think it's really up to us to understand what the clay code is capable of doing or not. Yes, yes. The, um, and I, I really love the, the point that you made about um, the role of the teachers more than just about um, providing the content, as rich as that content is, That's as right. difficult as it is to create good, meaningful content and ed like you said, I don't, like you, I don't, I don't want to dismiss the value of that, but right. um, the challenge and, and, and for me as well as an educator is recognizing that there has to be space mm -hmm. for the students to interact with um, test and, and provide a framework for that understanding uh, through, through the application. So that means surrendering some of those incredible concepts that you think that they absolutely need and out of, in order to allow for more space for interactivity, play, understanding. And, and Kelly, I imagine as a CEO, you face some of that similar you know, point of view as well as you want to develop people. Uh, and, and I mean, I, I had this like really interesting interaction with one of our Bear team members last year. You know, we, they made mistakes, they were working on a project, they eventually got to where we were. And, and finally, this particular project lead comes to me and says, you knew all along what this project was going to look like in the end, didn't you? And I said, yes. Uh, and he said, well, why, why didn't you just let us? And I said, you know, you wouldn't have been who you are today if I just told you what to do. And he agreed. And I think that's really it. As, as, as a good leader, more generally, be it in education, be it in business, I think that's it's important, developing talent. Uh, and, and so my other quick comment I was going to make when you were telling me about this this person and the... And the uh, accreditation academy that they run online is maybe they should be doing one for behavioral scientists as well um, to go beyond sort of just an application perspective to developing some sort of a science. I mean, it's, it's something we need in the field today, don't we? It's in the works. It's an excellent. <laughs> That's excellent. That we haven't, uh, uh, we haven't uh, had a chance to chat with you about. But Fantastic. Excellent. Good to know. Just already um, to, to, to talk with you about uh, the work that we're doing there. Um, so, um, just just sticking with uh, education, um, the for-profit education sector has um, the online for-profit education sector has been has been at this um, for for many many years, mm -hmm. and uh, you know we're we're all bringing uh, uh, traditional academies you know online because we have to. Um, but there's been for-profit that's been innovating and serving in that space for quite quite some time. And they face uh, challenges. Um, um, the student populations are different. 
you know, in a in an advanced, you know, M, you know, MBA course, and you know, that's you know, with people that have their path on on certain careers that they're they're you know trying to mobilize themselves into or upskill or enhance or augment their 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 prior academic work. So many of the students are experienced as um, and experienced uh, professionals, and so they have a different set of of life challenges than where much of the for-profit uh, education sector has tried has tried to serve the underserved community in mm-hmm. the education space. And, and that's presented some really complicated challenges, um, things like graduation rates um, in, the, in the online model. Now, potentially it is profitable to serve these geographically disparate populations, um, without the overhead cost of brick and mortar, teachers are able to, to, to serve larger groups and have assistance, help with things like grading and, and t- student support. Um, nevertheless, um, those, those graduation rates are, are, are tough, to, tough to achieve. And some of that is because they don't have that level of interactivity um, between the teacher and student that's really able to happen. Um, some of it is the, the student behaviors and practices aren't, aren't as demanding. Um, I know that the students at Rotman are, are very demanding and expect nothing less than attention and facilitation and innovation, um, which is amazing. Um, but the for-profit education sector is constrained in mm-hmm. many, many ways. Um, what would be some of the things that you would think about to, to help the, the that sector be um, able to to itself use this pandemic as a chance to to grow. So so a few things, and as you know, I've been teaching an online course, uh, BE One Hundred One X. Now for about eight years, it's uh, it's taken a life of its own. I, you know, I, I remember when I started doing that. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how long it's going to continue. Dan Dan used to teach a course on on Coursera at that point in time. And, and now about 280,000 registrations later, uh, every time the course comes to a close, I get a flood of messages saying, put it back on. Uh, and so it's still there, uh, but I've learned a lot of things there. So, so one of the things I learned obviously was the low completion rates that you talked about. And, and initially, you know, I used to read all of this research on, on MOOCs and, and the fact that if you end up with a 1% completion rate, you should be happy. And, uh, maybe no more than 10% of people will complete all of your modules. And, and I, you know, I, I accomplished that. And I guess one easy thing would have been for me to say, okay, I'm happy I've met the benchmarks. Uh, but I tried to find out a little bit more. And, and one of the things I learned was in my MOOC, for example, there were certain parts of the world where the completion rates were particularly low, as in people didn't finish the exams that they needed to finish to get a certificate. But these were also the parts of the world where I used to get the most engagement from. Uh, so, so the best questions, the best uh, sort of, you know, professor, here's what I'm working on and how would uh, behavioral science help me kind of questions, right? And, and, and so I ended up traveling to some of these countries over the past eight years. I met with some sort of, you know, participants uh, from the MOOC at that point in time. And I learned that they actually didn't care about the certificate. It wasn't why they were there. Uh, they wanted to actually get useful knowledge. And as long as they got that, they, they didn't care about finishing the course, right? And, and so I guess what I'm trying to get to is, is, you know, we've tried to adopt our sort of university type metrics 
to a lot of these digital education platforms. Uh, and we've said in university, you're successful if you finish a course, if you get a report card, if you get a diploma. Uh, I actually don't think that's true in the digital world. I mean, I've, I've consumed a lot of content. I've, I've been the other party, right? I, I taught myself some machine learning online and I didn't finish the courses. I, I didn't get the certificate, right? But I learned some really good stuff there. And I think we've got to think about the heterogeneity in what the educational goal is. And, and again, this is where technology can help design a course, for example, that has the same basic frame, it's the same content, but you can put people through different pathways uh, through that content, right? So I'm actually working on one right now where, you know, exactly uh, like you said, there are people who are slightly more senior, who know the basics. There are some people there who are there to learn the basics and just the content. There are some who want to do their jobs differently. And uh, my approach is a, you know, a lunch buffet approach is, is you put out a platter of different things and you guide people through it. All right. And then you say, well, look, you know, here's module one, that's the basics. Here's module two, that's the method. Here's module three applications. Uh, if you know the basics, well, learn the methods, learn the application. Uh, if you only want to know the basics, do module one, right? You can look at two and three if you want to, but that's not your focus. And then even within each module, you can actually create pathways, right? And I think that's, that's what we need to do. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, even on digital learning, when we, when we collect our feedback, uh, from from our participants, we use the same metrics as we use for the for the online uh, for the offline world, which is nonsense, right? Uh, and I think we need to ask them questions that had to do with what their goal was in coming to this uh, this particular course and whether that goal was met. And yeah, is it is it more difficult to do? Obviously, it's difficult to do, uh, but I think it's much more meaningful data. So I think we have to embrace the heterogeneity of our participants a lot better. But again, online lets us do that, right? I mean, I could not imagine doing a buffet type course in a brick and mortar world, uh, but online you can do that. So that's what brings us to the challenge then of um, uh, regulation. So one of the things that constrains innovation um, ironically with these early innovators in the for-profit education sector is, is uh, education regulation that mandates everything from graduation rates, a curriculum, a style of learning, and holds hostage uh, the ability to accept students who are, are funded by a government-backed okay. loan. Mm -hmm. And that... Uh, that regulation is not in the spirit of the kind of educational choice that you're talking about. Um, I want to put that forward for you because you've done so much work on the policy side that you understand both worlds. You, you like me, cross this chasm between um, educator and practitioner um, uh, aligned to uh, the commercial needs and, mm -hmm. and the spirit of, of, a, of, a, of a healthy or just cap capitalism uh, tempered by a healthy and evidence-based policy. I think, I think you and I are, are there's, there's a lot of kind of philosophical alignment um, between yep. us. And so I'd love to get your point of view on the role of, and, and also just understand um, what you're seeing from uh, your position at, at Rotman and, yeah. and 
partnership. How, how is it going right now? How are we facilitating innovation against that mandate? How do we, and then maybe even more meta, how do we facilitate innovation and leverage evidence-based approaches to help policymakers um, uh, allow, allow change, allow disruption? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think you've asked like a really complex question. I could spend the entire day on this, but, but let me try and organize my thoughts a little bit. So I'll free flow for a couple of minutes and I'll, I'll hopefully put some structure on this. So l- let me start off by putting on the table the fact that I am a supporter of appropriate levels of regulation. I'm not one of those people who says we need no regulation because we know that consumers need help. I mean, we, we, like, you know, we, we create societies where we let people make their own choices, but we also know that they can't make those choices very well. Uh, and, and so there's a bit of a paradox uh, that we then also oppose regulation. So I think regulation to the extent that it protects people, uh, it, it pads the environment, it, it makes the consequence of a bad decision not disastrous, uh, I, I think is great, right? Uh, I also think that... Uh, a truly unregulated uh, innovation ecosystem where we reward quick wins, which is what the venture capital model has actually done, um, is, you know, it it ends up favoring certain kinds of innovation, right? And and this is not my claim. There's a sociologist at Chicago called Galenson who's written some fantastic uh, papers and books on this. and, and he sort of talks about the, you know, a slow innovation versus a quick innovation. Uh, there, there, there was a talk that, uh, that someone gave, I'm trying to remember who it was, at, uh, at Bear many years back. Um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, actually, uh, where, he, where he compared uh, the, the sort of a creative production of a band like the Eagles with Fleetwood Mac. These are both bands I love. I suspect you like both of them, but they're very different, right? I mean, you think about Fleetwood Mac, uh, from the time they began, you know, personnel changes, people fighting with each other, disagreements, change of style, to the time that they had their first really big hit. It was a number of years, right? The Eagles came from nowhere. They, they had three boom, 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 back-to-back hits. And then I think in, in what, what was probably their greatest act of audacity, their fourth album, I think, was the greatest hits. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, in academia, your third paper is like, you know, the legacy of, uh, of, of my research, right? And then they were gone. And, and, and I think uh, Galenson sort of makes, makes a distinction between sort of the, the adaptive kind of innovation where you slowly work on things. It's a, it's a lot more like science, that, that sort of innovation, right? Whereas, you know, it's, it's not about the flashy findings. It's about refining theory. Like the best scientists have worked on their craft for years. I mean, you know, they've, they've done experiments and then they've not said that this is the truth. They've said, you know, let me try this somewhere else and let me now try it with these other conditions. And then it's about 10 years before they can then produce a, a theory of how the world works. And I think uh, then, then there's the, you know, the flashy ones, right? Like I, I, I write 10 papers about 10 completely unrelated things, but they're exciting. People are surprised. Uh, and I think we've tended to favor those, those quick, quick win innovations. We've tended to favor the eagles as opposed to the Fleetwood Max, right? And, and I think that's the other thing I worry about uh, in, in behavioral science, uh, in the world more generally, is I think we've just become more flashy with our innovations. And I think COVID has shown that, right? Like, you know, we've had all these innovations over the past 10, 15 years, but the world doesn't seem to be any more stable than it was. 
uh, from the time of the big recession. And, and, and so what's actually happened uh, is we've got lots of these individual flashy things happening, but you know, uh, the, the, the trajectory hasn't really improved. And I think th that's the other thing that we as society need to think about, right? Is uh, do we, you know, if, if regulation provides a friction to the flashy kind of innovation, but it encourages the slow burn kind of innovation. I'm all for it. I think we need to think more about that. I need. To, I think we need to think about financing models differently. Uh, so, you know, be it in education, be it in business, right? You produce a quick win, you get funding. Uh, and then you produce a next quick win, you get your second round of funding. Uh, but nobody's gonna give you like a 10 year highway uh, or runway to produce like the, the big theory, right? And I think that those are the kinds of things we need to start thinking about uh, in the ecosystem. Uh, but, but getting back to this whole notion of the triangulation between policy and business and innovation, um, I'll give you the example of, of some work we did a few years back on the privacy, uh, you know, online privacy stuff. I think you were involved in some of those discussions as well. Um, but every time you speak to the policy folks separately and the business folks separately, there is this belief that this is basically a zero sum game, right? Is if I concede, the other side is going to gain stuff. Um, so, you know, as regulation goes up, innovation is going to go down. Uh, if, if, if customer, if the government pushes for more online privacy, I'm going to be able to do less with it, right? And I actually don't think that's true. Uh, and, and what it took that instance for in, in that project is really, uh, I, I think you were there, we had this round table uh, in the atrium at Rotman where we had, I think, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world sitting with the Ministry of, uh, of, of Government Services, sitting with the Privacy Commissioner's office. Uh, and we realized within an hour or so that we all wanted the same thing. I mean, we wanted, we wanted there to be innovation. We wanted, uh, you know, we, we, we wanted consumers to be protected. Uh, but we believe that the other person wanted something else. And, and I think just kind of getting people in the same room and identifying the core elements of what's common to their needs, I think is, is critical and that doesn't happen. And I think that's where, you know, centers like ours and, you know, uh, shops like yours, where, where we bring these people together, I, I think play a big role because at the end of the day, these are complex challenges. Uh, and, and unless we, you know, we, we explore what the shared common values are. We're just not going to make any progress. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's my take on, on the whole policy versus innovation debate. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. I think that um, contextualizing uh, the types of innovation um, and, you know, which is the one that will have that longer term lasting legacy um, and kind of having permission to do things more slowly by challenging uh, venture capitalism, by challenging regulators, by challenging entrepreneurs, um, to to think about things with a with a lasting legacy, um, is is what we need as a way to qualify innovation. I, I think so, and I think, like I say, I think the trajectory has to be upwards overall. If you take away all of the fluff, and I don't mean fluff in a negative way, but if you if you clear the splatter from your kitchen are you left with a better dish at the end of it is the question, right? And, and the pandemic has kind of showed us that, you know, maybe our systems aren't that stronger uh, despite all of this innovation. We've got lots of cool stuff to look at, but that's what it is, it's cool stuff. Um, so, so I think we do need to think a lot uh, about, about how we can fix that. Yeah, and so uh, one of the solutions that you put forward was this, this idea of, you know, these kind of public-private hubs. Um, 
where we bring the entrepreneurs, the educators, the academics, the regulators um, uh, together to um, find those common goals and work towards a solution. So I think as soon as we have the pandemic under control, I think we have an opportunity, um, certainly in the for-profit education space, mm -hmm. uh, to bring the regulators uh, together to see if we can all get aligned on on, uh, on, on that sector to Absolutely. help more people have access to education, regardless of what their, their own academic history uh, might, might be. Yeah, I, I do think that our mental models of education will change. I think our mental models, students' mental models of education will change. I think we've heard all of these stories about people without college degrees going on to do great things, and that's, that's fine. Uh, but again, the question really is, you know, it's not the degree that matters, it's the education. And I think as long as we've created opportunities for students to learn those things somewhere, whether or not they, they leave with a piece of paper saying you now have a degree. Uh, I think also, you know, what's happened in the world is even 10, 15 years ago, it was harder to test for skills. I mean, you know, if I, if I wanted to see whether Kelly Peters was great at creating engagement, I mean, I just had to believe you and you convince me by showing me your diploma from the best possible advertising institute. Today, I'm just going to have you put up a campaign and say, well, let's see how many uh, you know, uh, hits you can drive to your website. And, and I think it's just becoming easier to spot, identify skills, right? So I think, therefore, the value of the paperwork is going to go down. But it's really these teachable skills that I think we need to focus on. Awesome. So what would you say is the, the next thing that you're um, thinking about right now in terms of behavioral science? What's, uh, you know, what's, what do you have time for um, right now? Oh gosh, uh, lo lots of things, but maybe two in particular. Uh, so as you know, uh, we have this behaviorally informed organizations uh, initiative at the center and Kelly, you've been uh, an amazing supporter, as well as the rest of your team. Um, and, I, and I think that's our next big hurdle. So two things there. One is this question of how do we best embed the science in organizations, right? Um, I, I think Nudge changed our world. Um, Cass Sunstein wrote a beautiful book called How Change Happens. So we can actually look back at the evolution of behavioral science in, in retrospect, and, and it fits the model, right? It, a lot of things happened. 2008, you know, Nudge, Nudge got written. Uh, just before that, Dan had written his book. So we had a lot of popular science floating around that I think created the ingredient for people to say, you know, that, that sounds interesting, right? Uh, and I remember in 2012, you and I had this conversation where we said, you know, all these people saying, Nudge is cool, how do I get started? Uh, and, and so, you know, we worked on this practitioner's guide together. And I think that was the other big trigger. Um, B-Works was set up, Bear was set up. I think all of these things started. Uh, and, and then I, I guess the biggest catalyst was Richard Taylor winning the Nobel Prize. I think that gets you more eyeballs, more attention than anything else. And, and so all of that has been great, uh, but I do think we now need to go to the next level, which is every organization I know of, well, maybe not every, like, uh, I sh as, as a good scientist, I should never say every and never, right? Uh, but most organizations are still using behavioral science as a problem solving device, right? I've put up a new product, nobody's buying it, what do I do? I've got a welfare program, people aren't taking it up. And I think we need to go beyond that. I think we need to 
embed that into every single process, every single mechanism uh, that the organization works on. Uh, so getting it into the organization is, is one thing. And I think then the other thing we need to think about is scaling it up. Uh, so again, a lot of the wonderful work that's been done uh, in the field is still at the level of a pilot. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm happy, for example, when I work in Mexico, we've touched about you know, 500,000 lives but that's still just 500,000, right? It's a huge country. And so how do we scale it up? And I think that's the other big question is, is we've seen John List and others have this fantastic word they use, the notion of voltage drop, right? Is every time you take an intervention that works so amazingly well in the lab or in a pilot and you scale it up to the population, you know, effects are very small compared to what you saw in the lab, right? And, and so how do we actually reduce that voltage drop to me is a big question. So I'd say those are the two big things that kind of keep me occupied. Yeah, well, we're uh, we're thinking about uh, the same the same things. I, I think so. <laughs> well, um, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm happy we had a chance to do a deep dive on education. It's something that all of us are watching, uh, whether or not you have children or young adults in school, or you're thinking about going back to school uh, yourself looking at uh, the role of innovation in transforming how education mm -hmm. can potentially be a silver lining out of this. And I'm very happy that it's a problem that you're preoccupied with right now, because I very much believe that education is, is essential to helping transform society. Yeah. And I, I'll go back to something I said, and I want to link that to Dan and some of my previous writings. So I, I, I know Dan really speaks a lot about rocket ships and having the, having the fuel and you know, making it easy to navigate. And I talk a lot as, as an engineer, I talk about pipelines. Uh, and so I've always said that behavior change is like a plumbing problem, right? Like step one, make sure there's a pressure differential across the pipes because that's what gets the fluid to flow from point A to point B. And step B, keep the pipes clean and make sure they're not leaking. And I think it's as simple as that. And, and I think we need to apply that to everything. So back to education, right? There's a motivation story. How do we keep people engaged? And then there's a making it easy story. And I would actually go so far as to say, and obviously the devil is in the details, but I think this simple metaphor, uh, be it the rocket ship or the pipeline, I think explains a lot of our behavior change challenges. And I think Sometimes they don't work because we just focus on the one and not the other, right? We can nudge people, but if they're not motivated, they're not going to make their way through the pipeline. Uh, or you can motivate them, but if the pipeline is choke, they can't make it through the pipeline. So, so I think we just have to make sure we get those two things right at the same time. All right. Well, once again, your metaphors have a way of being so illustrative of, of a concept. So. Thank you very much for your time today. And I'm very excited about sharing this interview with others. Fantastic. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, and thanks for having me.